I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast. Coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James. With me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Carroll. Today, we're talking about the recent CEO change at Google, the parent company behind Jack Daniels, and our two favorite fitness stocks. So Rory, welcome back to the Sock Club Podcast. You're missing last week. I know, yeah. You got on quite well without me, I have to say. It kind of made me feel <laughs> um, you didn't really uh, boost my confidence by actually pulling through the, that with uh, flying colours. <laughs> well, well, you probably know, I started off two weeks ago with a question for Emma, a stat question. So I'm going to hit you this week. How many... Google search queries are there every second on average? Oh, every second. It's got to be in the millions. Every second. I don't know. What, two million? <laughs> Can I have yeah. a go? Um, I don't think it'd be in the millions per second. Yeah, I'm going to go with 400,000. Just knock a zero off that 40,000 every okay. second. Wow. It's kind Still. of reasonable, but I suppose if you're thinking every second. Yeah. So... The reason I use the Google stat is because the first thing we're going to talk about is the recent leadership change at Google. So um, 2019 has already been a record-breaking year for CEO turnover. But the most significant of these recent changes was the news that Google co-founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin were stepping down as CEO and president of the parent company Alphabet last week. Um, Rory, these these two guys, I think it was in a Daily Insight, it was written, are, are two of potentially the most influential people of the 21st century anyway. But is this something that Google shareholders should be worrying about, this CEO president change? Um, definitely two of the most influential people in the last decade, well, longer than decade really, since yeah. Google was founded back in what, 19... Late 90s, yeah. 90s, but um, as a shareholder, no, I don't think you should be worried because it's, first of all, it's something that was going to happen. We kind of saw this happening ages yeah. ago. Whenever they reorganized the business um, to Alphabet and, and ste- they stepped away from Google and, and, and made Sundar Pichai the CEO of that, it was clear that neither of the two of them were really that much interested in the running of the business anymore. Yeah. And it's not really surprising. I mean, you hear reports that they pretty much stepped down and all but name a long time ago. Uh, there's employees who have been quite upset that the two have walked away from what they see as a kind of corporate government's train wreck in terms like, employee complaints not being handled, bad culture in the company, um, and the two are kind of just washing their hands of it and walking away when really they should be at least maintaining the culture of the company if, the, if you know, they founded it and it's the company they love. But, you know, <sighs> Google has, you know, this has always been this incredible company that changed the entire way that we, you know, look at the internet and how we use the internet. Like the internet was a real wild west 
before yeah. Google got involved and started bringing order to the chaos. And not just in terms of like organizing the way we search for information, but organizing the way everything was monetized. Like, you know, you and me joke all the time that the currency of the internet is outrage. Yeah. But, <laughs> and it, it, maybe it is. But the the dollar-based currency at the end of that is advertising. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, think back to the days before Google when you had those horrible pop-up banners with, like, try and shoot the bullseye target to win a free <laughs> iPod and all that nonsense. So Google changed all that. But what you got from very early on was that Paige and Brin really had very little interest in this whatsoever. Like, advertising yeah. to them was, like, the lowest form of innovation. Mm. That, I mean, that's why they brought in Schmidt in the early days to make, because to let him run the show. And yeah. So, so for years, the two of them have been like, right, we're making all this money from advertising, but that's not really what we want to be doing. What we really want to be doing is out there changing the world and having all these side subsidiary companies doing mad stuff that's going to improve people's lives. Yeah, and, and like people tend to forget that under the alphabet umbrella, there are these like mental companies like Calico and um, what's the, I can't remember. Verily. Verily, and that are, is, is Calico, Calico's, um, it's not its motto, but it, its goal is something like to solve death or something. Crazy. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, stop senescence. Yeah. Yeah. Because senescence or the aging of a human being or yeah. of an organism is considered a disease. We just don't think of it as such. Yeah. And I, I remember reading this that they said, what is the most prevalent disease known to humankind it's death it's the inevitable disease and it sounds crazy when you rewire your thinking to think you know we have a turn of phrase you died of old age which is in fact not quite true it sounds you... like the start of a zombie movie <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. we're solving death and, and that company calico was it yeah calico. yeah their mission is to to cure senescence the yeah. natural aging process of cells and that's that is one hell of a moonshot it's more exciting than it. advertising anyway <laughs> well it's definitely more exciting than advertising but like if you <laughs> like i mean i suppose as a google shareholder now you'd be kind of split into one of two camps so People have been saying for years that these other bets, this side thing that the guys are doing is leaving the Google business, the core business itself, undervalued because it, there's money being, you know, as we talked about a few weeks ago with SoftBank and why that company is, you know, on paper undervalued is because people think that Massasan is going to take up the money he's made from all these good investments like Alibaba and shove them into bad investments like WeWork and Uber. And yeah. So, so there's some investors who are like, oh, God, stop this other bets thing, please. Like, and if you are going to pursue it, like pursue it outside of Google. You know, yeah. it's, it's not core to the business in any way. Loon, you know, might be an internet company, but why does Google have to be involved? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you have, if you let it go out by itself and, you know, Page and Brink can fund these things themselves all they want. And you can see it survive in the real world rather than being in this kind of protected bubble of Google's kind of mad scientist university where anything goes and people are given kind of free reign to spend a billion dollars a quarter on mad <laughs> ideas. Yeah. Um, so you've got kind of one side of investors who are thinking that way. And then you've got other investors who are like, no, this is why I'm investing in Google. I want to be part of this mad experiment that they're doing where they have all the money in the world to take these big bets and try big things. But it just seems like it's so far removed from the core business that, you know, Bryn and Page are kind of using it as their own kind of personal play fund. Yeah, yeah, there, there's definitely a feeling of that, I think. I think maybe, you know, the fact that they're not giving up, the fact that they're walking away from the business and not giving up their super voting shares is probably riding people a bit the wrong way. Yeah. Like, if you're not going to be involved in the business, fine. Then just, you know, be, you know, stay on the board all, all you want and, and take the huge salary and the, and the money that you're going to make, the billions of dollars that you've created 
and go off and do new things if you want to do them. That's no one stopping you. It, it kind of fuels the the other argument I've seen quite a lot since this happened in that it's just that they, they aren't bothered with all the hassle that's going on with Google at the moment. You mentioned like there's there's been numerous reports of like a really bad company culture emerging at um, Google. They're obviously in the crosshairs of regulators. Um, Larry Page famously didn't show up in front of Congress when people like Jack Dorsey um, did. And it kind of seems that, you know, maybe in their eyes, Google is becoming a bit too much trouble for for what it's worth. So they're just kind of stepping back from the spotlight. Bryn and Page will never sit in front of a committee. They have absolutely no interest in being in the yeah. spotlight like that. They never have. So mm. like the, them moving away from that is, yeah, definitely part of it is that they don't want to be involved with regulation. So what about, well, he was already, I was going to say new CEO, but he's not really the new CEO, but <laughs> newly promoted higher up CEO uh, Sundar Pichai. What do we think of him? He's a great, I mean, like he comes across as a very intelligent, soft-spoken, knows the business kind of CEO. Um, the, the fact that he's been appointed the CEO of the whole business now might be an indication that they are moving back a bit towards the primary business. The core business. The core yeah. business. And by the way, the core business is still huge. It's not like it's just <laughs> advertising. They've got yeah. Android, they've got Maps, they've got like... YouTube. YouTube, you know, it's a huge, sprawling business. Yeah. that, And they're talking about like ambient computing now and hardware and voice assistants and everything. So like, there's enough on their place. <laughs> it's not like they're, they're pigeonholed. Yeah, they're not running out of ideas. Like, we might just solve that now. One of the great big trends for 2020, which I know we'll talk about uh, at another time, but one of the great big trends is self-driving. They reckon it's going to be the year of self-driving. And, you know, this is a Google Play. It's another wing to their, to their business that you just see is just nearly there. Mm. Yeah. So speaking of CEOs, another CEO we haven't talked about in quite a long time is Elon Musk. There was a danger one time of this show becoming the Elon Musk show. But um, a few weeks ago, he hit the headlines again when he unveiled the Tesla's new vehicle, the Cybertruck. So this is the company's first electric vehicle truck. Um, and just for a bit of context, maybe for some of our European listeners, that trucks are actually one of the biggest selling categories of vehicles in the US. There was uh, nearly 12 million sold in the US last year, the highest on record. And typically, well, in 2018, the, the top selling truck was the Ford F-150, just sold shy of 1 million units this year. And I suppose why Elon Musk has been in the headlines is that he put up a video of Tesla's new Cybertruck pulling against um Ford's F-150 and completely kind of embarrassing it, I suppose, and a kind of a war of words erupted between the two companies challenging each other, which I don't think amounted to much. But uh, Rory, what do you make of... Well, first of all, can we congratulate uh, Elon on uh, being found not guilty or... uh, (laughs) He doesn't have to pay pay that poor, poor sweet old man. (laughs) That was like $190 million, the defamation. Uh, I'm not... I don't know. Yeah, I can't remember what the figures were, but he... It was completely fair, like, (laughs) the things he said, but anyway. Yeah. Let's move on before we get sued. Yeah. Yeah, that was such... I mean, yeah, I suppose there was a lot of... um, There's a lot of talk about... that case just in terms of like twitter and what what the future of defamation and libel is in the world when when people just tweet outrageous things mm, and, yeah. and pretend yeah. that they, then pretend that they don't mean them um, but, <laughs> <laughs> um yeah going back to the cyber truck yeah it's a good point to make that like over here we don't have trucks mm. like they just don't not really the thing. they farmers and that's mm. about it farmers, bars, yeah. yeah farmers have trucks and construction workers have trucks but like you'd never buy a truck no. as your kind of family vehicle. Yeah, no. Wouldn't. So yeah, when you released the Cybertruck and I think the the first um, reaction was he's gone, he's lost it again. Yeah. Because um, it looked really, really 
strange. Straight out of Blade Runner, like. I and actually, the, the producer of Blade Runner was very complimentary. Oh, was he? Was yeah. He? I thought of the Homer Simpson card. Do you remember? I mean, this, is <laughs> yeah. go, this is going like very yeah. far in Simpsons folklore. But yeah. like when his brother owned a car company and he... He had a free design. reign to design anything he wanted. Yeah, and bankrupted that, the company. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first thing I saw. I think analysts as well kind of were like... A lot of analysts were saying, oh, mm. GM and Ford, nothing to worry mm. about here. Um, but... As according to his last tweet, they've already sold two hundred and fifty thousand, and that was about a week ago now, or yeah, even longer. Right. Yeah, and and on those pre-orders, it was a hundred dollar deposit, I think. So that's twenty five million in the bank straight away on the the pre-orders. Yeah, he's he does like juicing those pre-orders. Mm. Was it only a hundred dollars? It seems like a very uh, that's low what I, deposit. Yeah, that's what I found, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was only hundred bucks. Really? Yeah. Oh, well. well, let's not take it too mm. seriously. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think yeah. he juiced that a little bit more. He could have yeah. had a thousand dollars for a what, wow. 30, 40 grand truck, mm. but like. The thing is, it had to be outrageous, didn't it? Like, Elon Musk can't release no. a, you know, basic truck. It has to be kind of like off the wall. Yeah. Like, draw, like, and we saw the first uh, videos of it driving around there. It was him driving one around where he crashed into a bollard, didn't even really seem to notice. <laughs> um, so, and it looks just outrageous. And like, everyone who has one's going to be driving around thinking, look at me, look at me in this thing. <laughs> I'm in my so truck. I'm not, I think it's going to be quite a winner for them. Yeah, like I think it's, so too. I think a lot of the stuff that happened with it, the pulling the Ford truck was just stunts. Yeah, um, we also forgot to mention the, the bulletproof windows that weren't that bulletproof. I think he did that on purpose. Yeah. I'm convinced he did that on purpose. There's no way they would bring that out and do a live test without testing it. Yeah. That was meme generation 101. Elon mm. loves his memes. It got spread all true. over Twitter. Because and it's it's really not going to make that much of a difference in the in the yeah. to the sales of the car. Like, well, they have a long tradition of not spending money on advertising anything they make. True. So this is really you might well be right. I never thought of that, Roy. That this was just part of the the setup. I don't know if I agree, but I wouldn't be shocked if, in fact, they decided let's smash a window. Well, I, I mean, when I was researching a daily insight for it, I came across there was a company that was hired by the Conservative Party in the UK recently. They're a New Zealand company, and I can't remember the name of them. But um, they had had huge success in the most recent Australian elections. And their whole thing is to make really crap looking memes about the political <laughs> party. Like, honestly, like the worse, the better. Like use Comic Sans oh, fonts, crazy colors, really bad Photoshop. And the whole thing is that the more outrageous they are, the more engagement there is and the more they get shared and the more impact they have. So I like that's the kind of dark and terrifying insight into the way the world is going <laughs> and I think Elon Musk is well aware of that oh, I, think, so. I think that was definitely part of the game plan I think that company is Topham Gear, gear in it Topham Gear that was it yeah. yeah oh really well he says he doesn't do market research uh, and avoids the daily news so when you have the passion fanning CEO who basically is in don't talk to me and I'm not listening mode um, <laughs> you get the Cybertruck I actually think it's dead cool and I yeah. think it's going to be a big hit. There's loads yeah. of great products that have been created with literally to by totally ignoring market research. Yeah. Because when you like, you conduct market research, all you're finding out is what people think they want. Yeah. But if you can create a really good product, you yeah. can change their mind and tell Completely. them what they want. Dyson yeah. was the famous example. They, When he released his first vacuum, they product tested it and all the focus groups were like, love the vacuum, but we hate the see-through dirt collector, which shows all the dirt flowing around. And he refused to change it. He was like, no, that's 
that's staying that way. Yeah. And it turned out to be the most beloved feature mm. of the thing because you could see how well it was working. Yeah. yeah people yeah. were then like, wow, this is a really that's powerful right. vacuum cleaner. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I like his no market research, no advertising <laughs> uh, thing. Go for him. So we'll, we'll wait to see what, what unfolds with the Cybertruck. Um, let's move on to, to the company we never talk about. For this week's company we ever talk about, Rory, you're going to talk about the brand or the company behind the Jack Daniels whiskey brand, Brown Foreman. Yeah, you kind of ruined my um, my big uh, <laughs> unveil. Your big un- reveal. My big unveil. I was going to talk about. You've probably never heard of this company. It's called Brown Foreman, <laughs> but I guarantee you, you've heard about its main product, which is fidget spinners. No, it's Jack, Dan- <laughs> it's Jack Daniels Tennessee whiskey, um, ranked number four in the spirits brands worldwide and the largest American brand whiskey in the world. What's number one? Uh, Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker. Oh, yeah. Johnny oh, yeah. Walker. And I think yeah. Smirnoff is number two. Yeah. I'm not sure what number three is actually. But yeah, so it's, um, it, that's their main, their main product is Jack Daniels. They also own a couple of other premium whiskey and tequila brands, including Woodford Reserve, um, Slane, which is an Irish whiskey. I don't know if I call it a premium Irish whiskey. You ever really drink it here? It's called no. Slane. Yeah, Slane. Yeah. As a former whiskey drinker, I don't think I've ever tried it. Yeah, it's yeah. well, it's made up in Slane Castle, but it's not. It's definitely not massively popular here. But you never know what's going on yeah. over, and you know, different different markets um, have different kind of values on different brands. Mm. And then El Gimador, which is a, is a tequila brand, very uh, premium tequila brand. Uh, it's a thirty billion dollar business. Uh, brings in about three billion a year, and it grows pretty steadily between five and ten percent a year. Mm. Not no explosive growth coming out of it. Um, but it is one of the best run spirits companies in the world. So if you look at something like Diageo, Diageo is four times bigger than Brown Foreman, and yet they both bring in the exact same operating margins at about 33%. Okay. So all you uh, economists with economies of scale, the Brown Foreman have just blown your theories right out the window. They're <laughs> yeah. just really good at like at, at get, bringing money down to the bottom line in this business. Um, there's a few reasons why we really like Brain Foreman as a long-term investment. And as I said, it's not going to be a, you're never going to, it's not going to double uh, in the next two years or whatever. It's a slow-growing business. Um, but the first is that they're very well positioned to benefit from a long-term trend in the world of alcohol, which we've talked about many times before, which is premiumization. Um, so people are spending, drinking a lot less these days, but they're spending more on it. So yeah. people are happily paying up for better quality spirits in particular. And that's, you know, the cocktail revolution has had quite a lot to do with that. But you're seeing it in both wine and beer as well. Um, and the companies that are able to benefit from this are the companies that have those really strong brands in their portfolio. So, you know, you think about the Johnny Walkers of the world, the Smirnoff yeah. Alcos of the world, the Grey Goose of the world. They're the ones that have the name brand recognition to launch premium products and to, and to premiumize their brands um, to take advantage of this. So Jack Daniels and definitely Woodward Reserve both would fit into this category. Um, and the thing about whiskey in particular is that unlike other spirit brands, it does have very high barriers to entry. You know, it's not like vodka or gin, which, you know, any distiller could make and mm. have a batch out in the next year or two. Yeah. Whiskey takes five to 10 to 20 years to make. And so you, if you're starting a craft whiskey brand, you need to be thinking 10, 20 years down the line, which is very hard in terms of the capital investment, yeah. knowing how much demand is going to be. And actually a lot of craft whiskey distillers here have actually started their own vodka and gin brands just to keep the company flowing while, okay. while the whiskey matures. Um so it so it is a hard business to get into because there is a lot of risk and there's high upfront costs. So they're sort of protected from that craft spirit. Yeah, it's an economic moat kind of of sorts. Definitely an economic moat of sorts. Um, another reason I like them is that 
in emerging economies, they do have this really strange fascination with American brands. Mm. And I mean, Jer- Jack Daniels is an American as apple pie, you know, it's the most iconic yeah. American spirit brand by far. Yeah. So I think they have really good international growth opportunities there. And finally, as I said above, this is just a really well-run company. The return on capital invested is so high year after year. I think it's around 30%. And that's because they run that ship so tight. It's They divest underperforming brands very quickly. They focus on what they're really good at, investing in their big brands, especially Doc Daniels. And they've done things like really smart things like bring out flavored bourbons and premium bourbons, which open up them to a whole new category of drinker, those who probably wouldn't have drank whiskey in the past. Mm. So at the moment, I think the stock's kind of flatlining a little bit with trade tensions and trade worries. Yeah, so things like Brexit as well, I think, have impacted... Or am I thinking of Diageo? I think of Diageo, <laughs> where they buy all their uh, mm. they, their spirits from. Now, trade war is the, yeah. main, is the main problem that they have at the moment. And a kind of worry that, you know, alcohol is cyclical. People tend to mm. switch from dark spirits to light spirits and back and forth. That the, that the cycle with whiskey might be coming to an end at some point soon. But I think, they, again, if you look at emerging markets, whiskey is a very big category. Um, and, uh, yeah, they pay a very nice dividend and they're very good to shareholders. So... Yeah, if you're if you're into for one of a more kind of safe and steady stock, possibly even a bedrock stock, Brown Foreman is is a good one to be involved in. So can I ask a question, Rory? Uh, Brown Foreman has a few different categories of shares: mm. Brown Foreman A, Brown Foreman B, mm. and then Brown Foreman, I guess, original. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, can you describe or explain the difference in so those different? It categories? is a family-owned business. Yeah. Uh, so two thirds of the the voting power is held with the family, the Brown family, uh, and they are, that's the A-class shares that they own, which is why the B-class shares are the ones that are traded. So if, you, if you're looking up this, the ticker symbol for the stock that you would be owning, it's BFB, it's not the A shares, which is kind of a reversal. A lot of the times companies keep the B shares for the, for the, share, for the owners and the A shares or the C shares listed for public consumption. Good. So that's Brown Foreman, up nearly 40% since we added it to the My Wall Street app. Um, speaking of the My Wall Street app, there's loads of exciting new things in the app at the minute, including December stock of the month, and our brand new stock is coming on Monday, I think. Monday, Rory? Yep. Yeah. Uh, don't forget to check out our daily insights on the home screen too. And this is where analysts write about some of the things like why Spotify hasn't been added to our market beating shortlist yet, and the reasons why there'll be no Baby Yoda in stores this Christmas. Um, we also launched a brand new service this week. <laughs> Rory laughed at Baby Yoda. Speaking of Baby Yoda. Sorry, uh, I shouldn't laugh. I wrote it. But it's just still tickles me. Yeah. <laughs> We've also launched a brand new service this week, Emmett, called Horizon. Do you want to give us a quick few lines and what Horizon is? Yeah, sure. Horizon is, uh, as you said, James, it's a new service that we've launched here at My Wall Street. And very simply, it's I am taking uh, real money Mm. and I'm starting from the ground and I'm building a portfolio of stocks that I believe have a more than fair chance at having a disproportionately positive return. Um, My vision for the Horizon service is actually very, very long term. It's a 12-year Uh, perspective, hence being called Horizon. We have a 12-year horizon on this because when you find great businesses early on, investing too early, Mm. as we will do in some of the businesses in Horizon, is a long wait. And there is barely a global brand out there that didn't sit flat from when it floated for very, very many years. And you could have bought shares in whether it's Nike, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, whoever, uh, and found that you're holding on for years and years at the same price at which you bought and it and and 
that's the purpose. That's the driving logic behind the Horizon uh, portfolio and the Horizon service that we will find great businesses, invest in them early um, because too early is way better than too late. Absolutely. So if you want to find out more about Horizon, I'll include a link in the notes for today's show. Um, Jargon Busters. So Emmett, you're going to take it this week. And this comes in from uh, one of the longtime My Wall Street members, Damien O'Sullivan. He got in touch with us through the app. And he asked, would it be a good strategy to invest in dividend-paying stocks when the stock market is going well and then when a recession comes, start buying growth stocks with those dividends at discounted prices? So it's kind of a bit of a a question about a strategy about... um, The first thing is any strategy needs to be uh, tested with data or back-tested or preferably someone else has tested for you yeah. and published some kind of results that you can say this is a good strategy. So Damien's question is smart. It also sounds quite complex, mm. you know, and convoluted. And I think in order to successfully employ that strategy, you really want to have a fairly rugged understanding of everything in your portfolio, when you bought and why. Yeah, We advocate buying quality business and holding for the very long term. This is, is I find it to be quite a complex uh, approach. Okay. So logically, uh, yeah, I think that it is probably a good strategy. Uh, but don't forget that businesses adjust their dividends. So, I, you know, so saying we, I'm going to buy dividend paying stocks when the stock market is going well uh, is part one of his question, then a recession comes and start buying growth stocks with the dividends. Mm. It's all very predicated on good timing, really good judgment. And it sounded like quite a complex equation to me. So, you know, my answer, my short answer to Damien is that I wouldn't have the brain power to employ that <laughs> strategy effectively. Yeah. What do you think, Rory? Um, I think that... Most people are terrible at timing them. I think yeah. that, and I think that people like simplify it too much. It's yeah. just like, oh, okay, well, when the stock market is going this way, I'll do yeah. this thing, and when it's going the other way, I'll do the other thing. That's yeah. not really how things no. work. It's you don't know how you're going to react when you see your stocks dropping twenty, thirty percent. You don't know like what your visceral reaction is going to be. Yeah, and I think people overestimate themselves a lot yeah. when it comes to these kind of things. Um. I'm not saying this person in particular, I'm saying everyone yeah. Yeah. everyone oh, does. Do it. it's, yeah. it's human nature. Yeah. Um, especially if you haven't lived through something like it before, if you haven't seen your stocks drop like that yeah. before, yeah. you don't know what you're going to do. The chances yeah. are you're probably just going to sell and not get back in or you're going to panic. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a long-term strategy I would employ. Mm. I would always stick with what we say, which is just yeah. buy great companies and forget about the ups and downs. I'm with you, there. you also have to be able to time the market the other way. That's yeah. the problem. Exactly. You know? like, so you're, you're, it's, as you said, uh, Rory, it's, it's easy to time the market when you're looking at it retrospectively yeah. and go, there's where I should have bought growth stocks and there's where I should have bought dividend stocks. And, and therefore that is a good strategy. Uh, but you're now overlaying macro market analyses alongside uh, micro analysis of companies. So I, I agree with you. I just think it's, far too complex a strategy to employ successfully. Okay, cool. Hope that was helpful, Damien. Um, let's move on then to our elevator pitch. So I have a really simple pitch for you guys this week. Um, pitch me fitness stock. Just any fitness stock at all. Um, Emmett, I'll come to you first. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to go with Planet Fitness. Cool. Um, so as of the end of September, just gone, Planet Fitness had about 14 million members. 
about 1,900 uh, fitness gyms in 50 states in Canada and Dominican Republic, Panama, Mexico, and a few other places. Um, Planet Fitness is profitable, has uh, a net profit margin of about 17%. And it, just a couple of weeks ago, it announced it was going to buy back $500 million worth of shares. The reason I like Planet Fitness is that it's going in the opposite direction of a great movement where people are buying very sophisticated equipment for their home. And it's for those people who go, look, I'm willing to drop 10, 20, 30 bucks a month because I don't want to have that equipment. Yeah. So Planet Fitness would yeah. be the fitness stock that I pick. Cool. It's Planet Fitness. Rory, what fitness stock are you going for? Uh, well, I'm going to go totally opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go with a company that's, I think it's gotten quite a lot of unfair negative press and certainly one that's, it's one of those businesses that I think a lot of people, well, I think a lot of people misunderstand. Maybe I misunderstand it and maybe they're right, but <laughs> it's still early days. Uh, that company is Peloton. Uh, I think it's been kind of uh, kind of shoved off as kind of a fad uh, that the cost of the bikes are just outrageous. Um, but actually, yeah, we've talked about this before. If you look at the numbers, it's a very high performing business with a product that users absolutely love. They have currently 1.6 million users. Uh, about a third of them are subscribed to their premium connected fitness service with a 94% retention rate. And um, they brought in over 900 million in revenue in 2009, and that was up 100% uh, or over 100%. And finally, just to put a little cherry on top, We've talked a lot about this year about companies and obfuscation in their reporting and in their prospectuses. Peloton's reports are brilliant. They are just absolutely beautiful and they're so clear and presented so well. And to me, as an investor, I think that's a very good sign of co good corporate governance. And I okay. think it's a sign that they have really like high amount of faith in their business going forward. So that's Peloton. So, yeah two exact opposite ends of the spectrum really and mm. um, if I had to pick one I think I'd go with Planet Fitness because in my mind Planet Fitness is kind of like the Florida man of stocks so you know whenever you google Florida <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so whenever you google Florida <laughs> Florida man some crazy news story comes up about a guy in Florida and whenever you I have Google alerts set up for all the companies in our showroom and every week when I'd failed something nuts has happened on a Planet Fitness what was that famous one Rory about <laughs> And this is an investment thesis? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't know we could do those there. I didn't know that was allowed. <laughs> there you have it, the best Invested investment advice. Florida man in, of fitness. Invest in plan of fitness because every week there's some mad story about someone going in. Was it was the guy who got totally naked or yeah, something? Yeah, because it's a no judgment zone. <laughs> like He argued that you can't judge. <laughs> um, so we'll leave it at that. Uh, that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment and to check out Horizon. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode, please make sure to get in touch on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Um, on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. It really, really helps us out. That's it from us here today. We'll talk to you in two weeks for our final episode of 2019. Happy investing. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.